I should say that for us as a team, you shouldn't assume that we all share the same charismatic Christian faith. We don't. Um, so people will be coming from different perspectives. Um, St Paul's is a medium-sized Anglican church, although in our Diocese of Bath and Wells, um, it's a, a large church. Um, it's experienced growth over the years, and I think what is its unique contribution is that it's experienced growth whilst engaging a really very diverse range of people. Um, so you may on a Sunday be worshipping um, with folk who've recently been homeless or may have convictions with a whole range of different things, together with people who are lawyers or police officers or a judge and that, and all together in one sort of heady mix of community. Um, we work what's called, or what, we, what I call, a belong, believe, behave model of church, and Josh, I think, will share a little bit about that. And um, he'll try and give a bit of a theological justification for what I do in practice, because I'm not quite sure I could, but he, he can think about it a little bit more clearly um, than I can. We've been working with folk in recovery probably since about 2007 and eight, and it's really a story of God's intervention, people in recovery beginning to come, um, one or two wonderful God stories um, that helped us along the way, and then how we as a community have learned um, what it is to worship and to work with folk dealing with issues around addiction. We absolutely have not got it right all the time. And particularly in the early days, we made some terrible mistakes. I think we made it much worse for some of the people who came um, to worship with us. Um, I think particularly in the area of things like our concept of unboundaried love, which is wholeheartedly unhelpful, I think, in the way that we practice it. Um, and we've had to learn that love sometimes has some very hard edges to it and really does require a very firm and persistent no. So we've learned quite a lot around stuff like that. Um, I should also be clear before we start that we've worked um, on a particular model. So some churches, maybe churches that you know, offer treatment programmes, if you like, um, which they have developed themselves or are part of a church-led approach to addiction. We chose not to do that. We've worked on the basis that St Paul's Church, we are not experts in addiction and in the treatment of people in addiction. Treatment centres are. Um, so we are experts in how, uh, in a higher power who is Jesus of Nazareth and how you can have relationship with him and the impact that he can make in your life if you will partner with him. So we chose to partner with treatment centres rather than to offer our own treatment provision. So we work on the basis that the treatment centres are experts in, in addiction and addiction recovery and we are experts in um, what it is to have faith in Jesus and how you can follow him and try to bring the two together. Um, we will stop, hopefully, from time to time and have opportunity for questions and a little bit of discussion. Um, our first thought is going to be with Carol, who's going to talk about what addiction actually is and um, ways that you can treat addiction. Um, but before we do that, um, let's have a little bit of an opportunity for personal experiences of addiction um, and of those in recovery and then we'll have a brief video story. So maybe if you want to turn in twos and threes and just share what is your personal experience of addiction or of 
folk who are in addiction or recovery, obviously as much as you are willing to share. I'm not going to ask you to feedback. This is just about let me engage personally with this topic. All right, so take two or three moments to do that and then I'll call you back um, to hear Dan's story. So um, we're now just going to take um, sort of four or five minutes to listen to the story of a, a man called Dan. So Dan was a man I knew him when he was drinking and still um, not really cracked his recovery. Um, and this is his testimony really of, of how he came to grips with his recovery, the part that faith played in that. Um, before we start, you should know that Dan is now ordained and um, has come towards the end of his curacy and uh, he's looking for an encampsy post. So if you have one, he's a really great, a really great guy. So this is Dan's story. Gradually again, um, I believe God used that. Um, he used my ability to do music. 
and I worship. Um, and gradually I became more and more involved with the youth worship here. And eventually today now I, I lead worship here at St Paul's. God wastes nothing. Um, he knew that there was a talent, a gift that he'd given me um, for his purpose. And now I could actually use it and I could use it for his glory. There was one moment in my past where there was a, a definite time when God said to me, it's finished. And there was one time when I was really struggling um, with my inner turmoil and there was this sudden real desire to want to drink. Um, and it had been quite some time I hadn't touched anything. Um, and I remember the first thing I did was to pick my guitar up. I was on my own and I was in my uh, house and I just picked the guitar up and I just played and played and played. I remember suddenly while I was worshipping there was this sudden kind of voice, this feeling that came up from inside me um, that said that it's finished, that I don't need to count the days, the weeks, the months or the years, that he had dealt with me and he was going to show me what he was going to do in my life from now on. It was an amazing moment for me and it was a real kind of clarity that God A little nervous, we should put your hands together as well. Um, so, hi, yeah, I'm Carol, and I was sitting there thinking, How on earth do you follow that? Um, and I'm probably the only person in the team who is not a member of the congregation at St. Paul's. Um, and what's quite ironic was that I actually moved to Western Super, as you can tell from my dulcet tones, I'm from Birmingham. Um, 16 years ago um, to start training as an addictions counsellor. Um, so my introduction to St Paul's um, came about in a very, very weird way in I was the only member of the staff team who was adamant we should not work with St Paul's that I did not want Christians interfering in a 12-step recovery programme. What is even more ironic was I was the only member of the staff who ended up working with St Paul's. So it was a case of God was doing for me what I really didn't want to do for myself. Um, and it was really useful in that it helped me overcome a lot of my barriers, whereas I actually thought that... Um, Christi, you know, the, the, the Christian ethos and organised religion was the problem, it was actually my outlook was the problem. Um, 
and Andrew invited me along on quite a few occasions to do workshops for the interns, but I'd never actually done one on addiction. This is my first one, so I am anxious. Bear with me, and if you have any questions, please ask them. If I can't answer them, maybe somebody else can. So, addiction, what is it? And does anybody really know? Um, I decided to go on Google the other when I came up with this, and I thought, what's addiction? Within 10 minutes, my head was cabbaged. There were so many different theories on what was addiction. I got lost and I got confused. I'm an addict. I'm in recovery 19 years, just over 19 years now. Um, and so I have this understanding and this awareness, but after going on Google for 10 minutes, I was confused, but then again, I go if I get a headache, I Google it. Before you know it, I'm dying, and I have to go to A&E. It's a headache. So, um, he's told me to wait, but even if I need slides. <laughs> I thought, how do, how do I approach this? And I thought, okay, it's really important that we look at what it is not. Okay? And it's not a lack of morals. Children are not brought onto this earth, immoral. The most moral people can become addicts of one form or another. It has got nothing to do with loose morals. It is not a lack of self-will. Trust me, you have to have a lot of self-will to be an addict, to keep repeating the same thing and do what you need to do. So it's got nothing... How many times have you heard the saying, what's wrong with you, pull yourself together? You say that to an addict, they know it. They lack the capacity to do it. They might be able to do it in that moment, but it's the maintaining it. It's not a weakness. I had that said to me, you're weak. Do you know what it's like to walk into a crack house at four o'clock in the morning? That's not weakness. If you're a female on your own. It has got nothing to do with being weak. And I don't just mean in, the, in, in a physical strength, I mean in an emotional way, in a spiritual way, in any form whatsoever. It is not a weakness. People do not do what they do because they're Week. It is not hereditary. Whenever I was challenged about my drinking, I'd turn around and go, it's Irish. <laughs> All the family's Irish, half of them are alcoholics, I drink because I'm Irish. Um, I've got uncles and aunts who are alcoholics and cousins and that who are addicts as well. It's hereditary, so therefore I can do nothing about it. <coughs> Not true. When I went into treatment, my roommate was the only member of her family with an addiction problem. So how does that work out? I don't know. But it is not hereditary. Um, it is not culturally specific. It's not. It's like I drink because I'm Irish. Or I take this drug because I'm this. Um, 
I'm a raster, so I'm going to smoke lots of weed. No. It is not culturally specific. You've got people in India and Pakistan and Afghanistan using heroin. They will have a death sentence put on them if they're caught. They're using the same drugs as they're using in America, Ireland, France, Belgium, anywhere. <coughs> Wherever you go, there is a problem. And it most certainly is not glamorous. You know, I can get quite angry sometimes when I see television, movies, or Instagram pics. I don't do social media, by the way. Um, where it's portrayed as being glamorous. You know, like when they used to advertise cigarettes, for any of you, if you can remember that, any of you. Um, and the women and the men look cool, and they look dashing and suave, and to die for. And they were promoting cigarettes. And we find the same as well, that it's, and a lot of young people start taking it because they think it's glamorous. They think they're gonna get a name for themselves. They might do, but maybe not the one they thought they were going to get. Um, and it's not a choice, because somewhere along the line, choice is lost. You know, addicts do not choose to keep repeating and doing the same thing over and over again, because it's fun and enjoyable. If you've ever worked or been around addiction, and you see somebody repeating the same thing, and you're wondering, how can you keep doing that when you know what's going to happen? Compulsion that's strong, the choice is taken away. Um, it's not a social issue. Does anyone know what I mean by when I say it's not a social issue? Sometimes it can be pigeonholed, you come so addicts can be put into a box that they come from estates. Right, okay, I do. But that's by the by. But not everyone does. That roommate I told you about, she was a member of the Portuguese aristocracy. Her grandmother was a famous poet, and both her grandparents were well known in the revolution. Um, she didn't have any kind of like, you know, the, so it is not social. It is not, all of that can add to it. So poor housing, um, lack of money, um, poor education will add to it, but it is not necessarily the cause of it. Um, what you have when you have poor housing and a lack of education and you have poverty is a real urge to escape from it. And unfortunately, sometimes people can only do that with drink and drugs. Um, so that's when it can compound it and make it a lot worse. And that will add to the crime because there is a lack of money. Um, you know, you've got famous people who've been using drugs for multitudes and they're still alive. That's because they can afford good stuff and they can afford good doctors. Do you know what I mean? They're not buying street stuff that's been cut or had God knows what put in it. Um, and it is not fixed by throwing money at it. You know, I've spoke to a lot of parents who have tried to use money to fix their children. Um, money itself is not the answer to addiction. Having good housing and access to a lot of services makes a massive difference and really helps in recovery, 
but throwing money at the problem does not work. If I was active and you were throwing money at me, I'd pick it up and I'd go and use it to score. Simple as. It doesn't always work that way. It needs, it needs a really holistic approach. Um, so, okay, and I'm aware that I, you know, about time as well, so, you know, if, you, if I'm rushing, bear with me. Um, and a big one for me is, um, I don't think it's understood. I don't fully understand it. And I have met a lot of people who don't understand it either. It's, it's very complex. And there is no simple explanation. Um, and it is certainly not a first world problem. Um, I was fortunate enough a couple of years ago to go to Zimbabwe to help them set something up. Um, there are no treatment centres, nothing there. The corruption's horrendous. Um, but they had exactly the same problems as what we do here. Drink was a big one, but so was drugs. Um, and they're a third world country, almost bankrupt at the moment. So it is not a first world problem. You might hear a lot about the opioid crisis in America. That has been going on for a lot longer than what they've been talking about. A lot longer. We also have one in this country. And they're prescribed, so it's not seen as a crisis. Um, it's not contagious. If you stand next to an addict, you're not going to catch it. Simple as. And you would be surprised that some people actually think that. Oh, if I stand next to a heroin addict, am I going to become one? No. You're not going to get drunk by osmosis. You need to actually put a drink in you. So it's not contagious. You know, we're not all lurgied up, or God knows what. Um, and it's not solely a behavioural problem. If you see a young child and they've got a lot of um, disruptive behaviours... Look beyond the behaviour to the child and ask yourself, why are they behaving like that? If you see an adult who's been very disruptive in behaving, look beyond their behaviour to the adult and ask yourself why. Because normally the behaviour is in response to something else. But it is not a behavioural problem. I know quite a few addicts who behave very well and never got caught because they behaved very well. Some others were a bit more leery and a bit more out there and kept getting caught. So, do you know what I mean? Um, and it's not a class problem. Addiction does not choose who it affects. It doesn't care where you come from, what your colour is, your race, creed, anything. It will impact on you. And the bad thing about addiction, the whole family gets to play. And the impact on the family is devastating. Let alone on the addict itself, it, the family is the one that can really suffer. Yeah. Okay. Common excuses. Right, so these are some of the things you might have heard already. Everyone else does it. I can stop whenever I want. I'm not hurting anybody. If you had my life, I think we all know that one, if you've been through what I've been through. Um, I'll get help later. My doctor prescribes it so it's okay. And that's the one that you might come across a lot. 
Uh, it's part of my culture, which we've already discussed. I need drugs or alcohol to enable me to perform at work, and I can control it. Have you heard that one? Yeah. They're sat there, off the red, but they can control it. Okay, so the definition, as I said, I went on Google. So I've just picked a couple. Um, so the Google Basic Dictionary just said, fact or condition of being addicted to a particular substance or activity. Addiction is not just alcohol and drugs. Gambling, sex, relationships, shopping, nicotine, chocolate, food, it can go right across the board. And then this next one, and this is a big one, right? There's a lot in this. Addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviours that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. Prevention efforts and treatment approaches for addiction are generally as successful as those for other chronic diseases. Um, and that's from the AMB Board of Directors. And that was written September this year. I think that covers kind of every post, but the important thing is what it says there is generally as successful as those for other chronic diseases. You know, and, and, and that is the important bit. Okay, next please. Um, and our own National Health website says addiction is defined as not having control over doing, taking or using something to the point where it could be harmful to you. Addiction is most commonly associated with gambling, drugs, alcohol and nicotine, but it's possible to be addicted to just about anything. A couple of years ago they were saying something different and a lot more simpler, but they're actually expanding now. But nobody's committing to one thing. Nobody's committing to one solution or one concept. Right. Okay, so I thought what I'd do is I'd ask the experts, or the radics. Um, so this bit is a bit from Narcotics Anonymous Basic Text. Uh, it's written by addicts for addicts and it focuses on the solution. Who is an addict? Most of us do not have to think twice about this question, we know. Our whole life and thinking was centred in drugs in one form or another, the getting and using and finding ways and means to get more. We live to use and use to live. Very simply, an addict is a man or woman whose life is controlled by drugs. We are people in the grip of a continuing and progressive illness whose ends are always the same, jails, institutions and death. Um, I sent out a text to several different people, not all of them in Western, and asked them to write me one sentence. Right, you ask an addict to give you one sentence, like me, can't stop, carry on and on and on. Um, and this was the first one I received back. Addiction is an obsessional, obsessional thought that overrides all other thoughts. Addiction is a disease that centres in the mind and affects all areas of my life. Addiction is more powerful than me. Addiction is an obsessive compulsive behaviour I am powerless over. Addiction is a disease of the mind. Addiction is a mental illness. Addiction is powerful and has robbed me physically, mentally, spiritually and emotionally. Hey. 
Addiction to me is a constant need and desire to change my perception of my reality, based both in my thinking and feeling. It's something that wants me alone, where it can manifest itself directly in my thinking, affecting all areas of my life, sent to me by Kay. Addiction to me means pain, chaos, obsession, compulsion, using against my will, and hurting those that matter and everyone else in between. Loneliness, despair, and desperation from Joe. A delusion of my mind, an obsession that crowds out sound thinking and reasoning, so I'll do whatever it takes to get what I'm obsessed with, despite evidence that it is a bad idea. It lives inside me, I feel it every day, and it's trying to ruin my life, my friends and my family. A killer illness, it lies to me. From JR. Addiction to me is having an abnormal psychological reaction to things that some people can use socially or recreationally. I have no off button, and once I do these things, I am unable to stop through willpower or consequences. It is like my mind has been taken over with the obsession to continue and I am powerless to stop. When I'm in this cycle, I am terrified and guilt-ridden from H. Being an addict is like being possessed and living in the devil's playground. Being clean means seeing the truth from the light and coming from the darkness to the light, sent to me by MK. Um, these went out quite randomly. But not one person has mentioned drugs or alcohol, really. What they have mentioned is a compulsion and obsession. They've mentioned loneliness and they've mentioned despair and not being able to stop, even though they want to. Um, if someone's child is not powerful enough to stop them using drugs, that would say a lot, really. People will use against their will. Okay, treatment. There are many forms of treatment and I was reading an article the other day in America they're actually starting to do implants. Personally, I'm horrified. They used to do that to addicts back in the 70s, put them in a coma for weeks. I knew somebody who died because of that. Because um, when they woke up, they should be cured. Some people never woke up. So, if the if and it is a big if, the individual does want to address their addiction. Um, for treatment to be feasible, there's no guarantee, no guarantee treatment's gonna work. It's, you know, you, you need to understand that. So if somebody goes into treatment center, accesses a diet program, it is no guarantee it will work. Um, so you have the 12-step program of Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous is GA, which is Gamblers Anonymous, um, SI, Sex Addicts Anonymous, and Codependence Anonymous. There's a lot of anonymous programs out there, and a lot of 12-step ones. Um, they're also free. Uh, detoxification, especially alcoholics and addicts will probably need that first. Um, Counselling, outside help for other issues. Rehabilitation programs, support groups, medications as well could help. Um, and then you have the various therapies, CBT, um, groups, psychodynamic, music, art, equine therapy, and the list goes on and on. And that's it.
Thank you. Carol is going to stick around, so she will be here afterwards if you want to engage with questions and stuff. Um, that's been really helpful oversight. Um, I think it'd be good to have some personal stories. So I've invited Kim. Um, one of the things of um, working uh, with folk in recovery is they're deeply passionate. So we have issues as a church, and sometimes it will be things like having um, a couple of folk in recovery out in the car park, having a fight, a proper <laughs> fight. When you break them up and you ask what's going on, he doesn't believe in grace enough. <laughs> Give us an example of what grace can do. And she's going to come and share with you a little bit of her experience of addiction and overcoming addiction and the impact that the church has had with her. Um, she's Hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much for inviting us here today. It's always a real pleasure to come and share a bit of my story and to share about um, what my faith and my recovery programme has done in my life. Um, so we, thank you, Carol, as well. That was brilliant. Really well done for that. I was watching Dan's testimony on the screen. Um, I know Dan, and um, God is amazing. God has redeemed that man. Um, but that was not my story. My story is very different to Dan's. I have been an addict since I was about, probably about 15 years old. Um, and I was in, you know, I was in prison by the time I was 19. And my whole life has consisted of jails and institutions, um, probation programs, psychotherapy, detoxes, um, all of that stuff that Carol mentioned. I was in treatment centres that didn't work for me at that time um, and really my, my life was horrendous um, and some of you, I'm sure actually probably most of you will know somebody in addiction or somebody's family who is suffering with addiction. Um, my family um, have just been devastated by my addiction. My addiction nearly killed me. I had to have open heart surgery and I've now got a pacemaker, I've had to have a valve replacement. Um, my daughter, who is now 11, was removed from my care when she was two because her dad died of a drug overdose. Um, it's been a real, real mess. Um, and none of those things, that is not what I had planned for my life and I don't believe that that's ever what God had planned for my life either. But I just could not, I couldn't stop, no matter what I did. Every time I went to prison, I'd, I'd, I'd be like, this is the time, this is now my time, I'm going to stay clean this time. I, I made all the promises to my family that this is, this is going to be it. And within half an hour of getting released from prison, I was using again. And that kind of, that was my life. And I thought I was going to, that is how I thought I was going to die. I thought I was just going to die another statistic, another drug addict. My story, the way it differs from Dan's, is that um, I came to faith a few years ago now, and I had a lot of people praying into my life, and had been for a long time. I used to meet the street pastors on the street, and they would pray for me, and I'd use, I've, you know, I've been homeless in, in, in my addiction as well. Um, and I used to, you know, used to use all the facilities that, that people used to put on, and I, and I was really loved. That's the one thing that I was, um, I was loved by everybody in the church. 
What they didn't know was how to treat my, treat my disease. Um, I didn't know how to treat my disease. I wasn't made aware of any sort of recovery programmes. All that time of going in and out of prison, going to probation, going to treatment centres. I spent a lot of years and no one had ever mentioned Narcotics Anonymous to me. Um, so I found, I found faith and I knew that God was with me, but I still had my disease that was untreated. Um, and that's when I found myself back in prison and kind of just wanted to die, really. Absolutely just wanting to die because I couldn't carry on living the way that I was living. Um, and I just wanted to die. And so I went and I spoke to the chaplain when I was in prison and um, I came out and Jesus really met with me during that prison sentence. He gave me hope for the first time that I hadn't had in a long time. And I came out of prison and I got involved with Believers in Recovery, who um, I knew a lot of the guys anyway from my previous attempts at recovery, and they really showed me how to work the programme. They, they showed me what it looked like to be able to stay clean. Because a lot of people come to faith and they have Dan's story, where that's it, God says it's finished, and it's finished. But that wasn't, that's not mine. There's many of us who come to faith and we still suffer with the disease of addiction. Um, and Andrew, I think you spoke about um, boundary love as well. You know, if lots of people in the church with beautiful hearts and, and beautiful intentions, they'd have people like me in their homes only to be stolen from a week later um, and things like that because addicts, unfortunately, have no boundaries when it comes to getting their next fix getting the thing that they need to be able to function, they don't have any boundaries because they're driven by compulsion. I was driven by compulsion. So I got together with the guys at Believers in Recovery and um, they taught me how to stay clean, how to stay clean, and they were people that I could share my faith with. Because when I was going to Narcotics Anonymous before, there was no Christians. So I stopped going to Narcotics Anonymous and just going to church. And that didn't work for me because the nature of my disease needs, it needs to be treated. So anyway, so Believers in Recovery has just been an absolutely like, formidable force in my life. I'm surrounded by people who um, suffer with the same disease as me, have the same faith as me, have been able to pray with me and guide me and show me the way and I have a Christian mentor who is at Believers in Recovery, who is obviously able to speak to me um, biblically. She prayed with me and she showed me how to walk out my faith um, whilst working my program. Um, and that woman, she's just had such an impact on my life. Um, and I, I think we're gonna talk a little bit about her in a minute, aren't you? <laughs> um, you know, so it's just been, and, and you know, I, I, I spoke about my daughter, Imogen. She was removed from my care when she was two. And I got her, she came back to live with me 18 months ago. And she's, she's just incredible, isn't she? And like Andrew said, I'm now a, a youth leader. I'm able to speak to young people about the real issues that they are facing. You know, and hopefully have an impact in their lives. They don't have to live out the same life that I did. Um, you know, that there is, there is um, 
because a lot of them are going to be affected by addiction and that is just that's just a fact um, but there is places that they can go there is there is people that they can speak to um, and there is people around that understand what it's like to be an addict but you don't have to stay and live in all of those desperate behaviors I think in the basic text it says that we get reduced to animal instincts and that was what I was living like I was living like an animal um, and I think my, my bit of advice for anybody that's got addicts in the church is to maybe invest in a basic text and find out where your nearest NA meetings are. That's yeah. it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I don't know about you, it kind of makes me well up a little bit to, you know, to hear a story and hear a story like that and also to see God's redemption and uh, you know I get to be blessed by seeing the amazing impact that this woman is having on the lives of young people. Um, let's take a break here for um, five or six minutes. Um, how about we it's uh, how about we come back at three and we go on and after at three we're going to hear Ben's story. So Ben um, is the son um, of uh, a family struggling with addiction, so you'll hear what his impact, the impact on him growing up was, and uh, then we'll hear about from Gavin about believers in recovery and why it exists, and then um, from Josh a little bit about what we do at St Paul's is this theologically okay, or are we just doing something that's a bit dubious, really? Okay, so let's take a few minutes. We'll start back sharp at three. All right, so mate, this is your moment. Come stand with me. Um, I won't do the height. So this is this is um, Big Ben Notley, and um, Big Ben Notley is our children's leader at St Paul's. Um, although you were a bit of a noisy boy, weren't you? No. Nope. Yeah. You were a little bit of a noisy boy. Sometimes at St Paul's we do have situations where. Um, they may be someone doing roll up at the back of the church and that sort of type thing, and you did that sort of stuff all over the place. Really. Just not in church. Just not in church. No, not in church. Anyway, so um, Ben's um, mum and dad both dealing with issues um, around addiction, and um, so that made um, childhood and upbringing less than normal. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought it'd just be helpful to see a little bit what the impact on a family member is of, of growing up in a home with addiction. So over to you, Missy. Cool, yeah. Um, echoing what Kim said, it's really good to be with you. Um, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm used to um, speaking to kids. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, um, like, we're kids of God, so that's, that, that's something, I suppose. Um, so, starting right at the beginning, my dad and mum met each other. My dad kind of went through phases in his life, and he was hippie, skinhead, and then evangelical Christian. And then, um, but with, and so um, he met my mum at an after party at a pub with a spliff and a Bible um, and um, preached the gospel to all of them. And six people got baptised through that. And that's how their relationship is like. And they, they, they kind of moved on into a church and got settled down and moved away from all of that. Um, and then having my, my sister and myself. So I was born and into a Christian family, I suppose, but it was really dysfunctional. So my mum was a raging alcoholic. Um, she. It impacted everything I saw, so all, it was all arguments and um, like, so as a kid I lived in like Bruton, like a little village town and all the kids went in when, when the streetlights were off, but actually 
I didn't go in because the household was erupting in physical fights and verbal fights and it was carnage. Um, so the first six years of my life were really, really awful. Um, my mum came to pick me up from school, drunk once and um, we walked her back home. She didn't walk us and she fell over and a teacher walked past and stared and in um, judgment as I saw it and she, she didn't even help us and, and so from a very early age like the reason I share that is actually like my kind of perception of so going to church on a Sunday and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday was just awful. It's like um, God gave me my family and why would God give me a family full of nut jobs and alcoholics and um, so I really struggled with that and um, so my mum went to treatment in 2001, she went to Western Supermare to the self-empowerment um, treatment centre and she, um, so she moved away from us and um, I remember I was went, like, waving her off goodbye and she, she took my, my Man United flag because she was passionate about football and booze, <laughs> that, that, that was her thing and um, she left treatment halfway through so she, um, my dad divorced her in treatment and she met a man and um, so due to that, her side of my family um, so my nan, my uncle, my auntie, my four cousins, they kind of sat me, my dad and my sister down in, in a room and at six years old and they said we actually want nothing more to do with you, we're going to completely write you off everything, we won't send you Christmas cards or birthday presents because we just can't cope with your mum's drinking so therefore it's easier just to cut you all off and um, Bruton's quite a small place so we live like four or five doors down from <coughs> each other and um, so it was really, so I instantly grew like resentful towards People and like my trust level was just hit the floor. Um, until then, I, I was pretty good at school. Um, I kind of did what I needed to do, and I liked my teachers. And then I just remember my, my school life just plummeting. Um, I was always the kid being sent out, and I was always like the one being naughty. And my dad wasn't kind of engaged with that because he was trying to work two jobs and be mum and dad. But mum was um, still. So my mum left treatment with this man and just carried on using, basically. And um, I didn't see her, it was on and off. And then um, it got so much that my, that my dad actually had to send us to live with mum because he wasn't coping. Um, I would often do PE in my boxer shorts because we wouldn't have PE kit. And you can imagine the response that I'd get from teachers and pupils. And it, it's a little thing, but actually to a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, that's major stuff and like that. That's it. That, that was ingrained in me actually like you're just like this parasite which no one wants around that you can't, that your dad can't even get a peek at. So anyway I shifted off to mum's and um, so her partner was addicted to crack cocaine and um, that and alcohol and like so she, her, her poison was alcohol and his was crack and they were used together often and um, Eventually they had a baby, um, my half-brother, and um, he kind of, it felt like they'd had another kid to try and fix their relationship, and like, me and my sister ended up doing a lot of the work, so we ended up changing his nappies and getting him up and getting ourselves dressed for school, and my mum would make us walk to school so she could drink in the morning to kind of um, <coughs> still have nerves and get ready for the day. And um, I, could, I, I could talk for about a good hour and hour or two about how crap it was as a kid. But I've got two minutes. Okay, right. Then I was, um, so it, it just went on, it just went on and on and on, right? And um, then I moved back to my dad's because 
my mum was drinking, so I was flitted in, in and out. And um, I kind of was struggling a home life. I had a telephone relationship with my mum, who I hated, and um, I put my first drug inside me at 12 years old. Um, and it just made me feel amazing. It made me forget about everything. Um, skipping along a few years, um, I, I did school. I was awful in school. I was um, setting fire to things, smashing windows, hurling abuse at teachers. Um, all to make people like me. I realised that my words have real good impact um, if I use them in a way that made people laugh. So actually Ben Notley was, my nickname was Ben Potley because I would sell pot to the boarders at school. And, 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 and I kind of built this reputation of me, but my home life was just in catastrophe. Um, a few drips and drabs of the Lord here and there. Um, I got baptised in a church at 13 because I fancied the pastor's daughter. Um, nothing really kind of came of that. Um, me and the Lord, we're, we're, we're cool with that now. Um, but, um, but actually, like, like I, I was in a real bad place. And um, so 2014, um, I, some, I went to college to sell drugs and make music. I wanted to be a drum and bass MC. I wanted to kind of take that really, really far. And um, this lecturer came from Western and he said... Um, I'd like to offer you a place unconditionally, come and have a look around, rah, 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 rah. Um, I go there and I think, yeah, Dad, this is amazing, like, this is where I want to be. And long story short, at the same sort of time, one of my mum's members of a small branch group felt the Lord saying that I need to build you a bedroom in your garage. Um, I don't know who for. And then I get the phone call and she's like, well, someone's already built you a bedroom here, so um, you can come and stay there. So I thought, result, I can not pay university fees. And she had two rules. She said, you can, um, you can kind of, you can't have any girls in the house and you've got to come to church once a week with me. And I went to church with her and um, I just saw this new creation really like I was sat with her worshipping like hallelujah and, and I'm used to worshipping because I'd seen that and I sat next to her and she looked really uncomfortable like something was brewing up and then all of a sudden in the worship she just said Jesus and I never sat with her again like I made friends really really quickly in church and I thought like but in, inside of me um, as a Christian I thought well that's all well and good for you you've 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 God's restored your life. I'm still resentful towards you. I'm still um, ang like angry with everything that's happened. And then she brought me to Believers in Recovery as a family member. And what Believers has done for us has just been so God-given. Like, we, um, we, we read the Bible together um, as mother and son. Like, 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 we would go home afterwards and have chats about how good God is. Um, and then we, we were reading Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, and, um, and it says in one of them, it says, I chose the parents that I, that, I, that I gave you, and I gave them to you for a reason. And that just, like, triggered in me. And, and, and I kind of think, like, and it, it really upset me. I was like, but you, you've given me this. And, 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 um, and I was angry with the Lord and really, really, like, crying and, like, not Andrew will know, I testify. When I cry, I cry. And when I get prayer ministry, I often leave a swimming pool on the floor around me. And it, it was very much like that. And I just felt the Lord say, actually, Ben, I, I also gave you John and Moira, who brought you to church every Sunday, even though you'd been out taking party drugs the night before. I, I brought you your youth worker. I brought you your next door neighbour, I brought you all of those people to get you through 
the crap which you had to go through. Um, so as a kid, it was really hard. Um, growing up, it's still difficult. Um, that there are still things that I, I still struggle with rejection. I still struggle with um, self worth and what people will think of me are, are. It won't be enough and all that sort of stuff. But and all that stems from this deep rooted kind of. Um, childhood that I was given but God is so good so my dad passed away four years ago next year and because um, he was an active addict and um, the Lord had made my mum so strong that she carried me through that and actually the Lord brought me to a place because only, only God knows the time that will go and the day that will go and God's grace has actually allowed my mum and I to have a solid relationship where he died on a Saturday and the Sunday she said, you, you come to church because you worship God in your bad times and, and in your good times. And that's the sort of mum I have today, a mum who is strong on the Lord, um, even through all of her addiction. I'll leave it there. Thank you. So amazing story of redemption. So uh, again, I knew Trish, Ben's mum, when she was still drinking. It's been amazing to see her through. She's um, reconciliation with her lad, and um, they danced together. And, uh, <laughs> uh, they did. They danced together and lived together. Trish has now paid off her debt. She's paying a mortgage. She's held down a couple of jobs for a few years. She said, you know, I'm 50, Andrew, but God hasn't finished with me yet. I always wanted to be a nurse, and she managed to get herself a GCSE Maths this year. She's currently just started a nursing course at the university here. And uh, she said, first time I did my GCSE Maths, she said, I was too ashamed to write everything on the paper. I'd had my stomach pumped the night before because my mum had beaten me. And, and now I see God's restoration there, and you see how that's flowing down into a family. Ben said, there's a lot of stuff to work through. We all have a lot of stuff to work through. And as he said, you're very likely to see him on a Sunday sobbing and um, working that stuff through. Ready? So great. Thank you so much for sharing. Right, let's hear a little bit from Gavin, Gavin Parry. So Gavin is the sort of man that the Church of England ought to select. But I think if he were to go to a BAP, it would probably blow up. They'd have no <laughs> idea, no idea where to hit them. But he's an incredibly pioneering man. So he's, um, he really did pioneer believers in recovery, which is really a bridge between um, the rooms, what they call the rooms, where you may go and talk about higher power, but not about your personal faith in Jesus, and between church, where you can talk about personal faith in Jesus, but actually recovery is a bit of an imbalance, which I don't really want to talk about it too much, as long as it's not too messy. So Gavin will tell you a little bit about how believers works and, and what it does. Well, um, it's really good to be here. Normally when I speak, I've normally got top of my notes, two minutes of rambling just to get into it, but I ain't got time to do that. So I'm just going, <laughs> just going to have to go straight into it. Andrew's gave me um, 15 minutes to talk about three subjects. Uh, and I ain't as technically able as um, Carol, so I'm old school. I've got scratches of paper and a flip chart. Right, so boom. Um, so I've got three, three eddies and I'm going to link them up anyway. So the first one is meetings, how does, how, does, I can't spell it. How, does, how does that affect addicts and what goes on there, believers in recovery, and the church. So what goes on in meetings? 
and what he sees as a Christian advert in meetings. I mean, and it, it can be quite hard because 12 step program is a secular program. It, it's, it's, it's a works. It's a works program. So as a Christian, we know that we are saved by grace through faith, not of our own works. Uh, you know, our works are you know, filthy rags. But then we come into meetings and we're told we've got to do works. So, so a, a non-Christian don't have that problem. A Christian coming into meetings can think that. But what we have to understand is that the works do not achieve salvation. So the works, you do get saved, but from drug addiction. So we work a 12-step program, as it works, we get saved, but from drug addiction. We do not get salvation from a 12-step program. Okay? And it can be really hard in there as a Christian because you're not allowed to talk about Jesus. And, you know, and we know what the Great Commission is. We've got to go and, you know, make disciples of all nations. But now we're in a 12-step program and we're told we can't because we've got traditions. You know, but what we say is with Christians in 12-step recoveries, maybe you'll be the only Bible that someone sees today. So we still go there. You know, so, you know... And it can be really hard. You can, you know, just like anywhere in life, the Christian can, can you know, be prejudiced kind of. You know, pre, people's preconceived ideas of what a Christian is. And a lot of people in 12-step recovery might be brought up in, in, in the Catholic faith like Carol, and they've got preconceived ideas that a Christian God's punishing. So it, it can be, you know, it can be really easy, really easy as well to be pulled into the world. Because we're not of the world, to, as scripture says. But then we're in a 12-step thing and we ain't surrounded by our brothers and sisters. So they can do stuff that we can't do stuff. And they say, what do you mean you can't do that? I can do that. So, so it's really, it can be really easy, especially as a new Christian, to get pulled into that, in 12-step meetings. You know, and, and over the years, you know, I've worked with quite a few Christians that have left 12-step meetings. And then used and they few drugs again. Because, you know, and, and one of them who I worked with a few years ago died a month ago. You know, he had 14 years clean, he was a school teacher, he was in heavily embedded in his local church and service, and he left the 12-step program and he used. And then I, I started working with him, sitting back through the steps, was doing really well. He left again, went back into church, he's dead. Uh, so I'll get a start. I just want to read a little bit of 12 step literature for you. This one says, We as members have a duty to encourage the spiritual exploration of other members. We who are exploring need to know that we can look wherever we want for our spirituality without threatening our NA membership. It is essential that we don't let our spiritual path take us away from the fellowship. Our basic sexual minders is easy to float back out the door on a cloud of religious silver. Forget that we are addicts with an incurable disease. We need to always remember that we need narcotics anonymous in order to deal with our addiction. With our addiction. And many people leave the fellowship and they use. And they use drugs. You know, so not so do I know people that have got clean in the church? Yes, we heard a story, but I know many others that haven't. And they leave 
and they'd leave because you know it's pretty hard. You, you know, in there you're told to have the God of your own understanding, so you, so you encourage the Creator God with your mind. Well, there's a disease living in there that wants to kill. Yes. <laughs> so I, I created a fantastic God before I was a Christian. He let me do whatever I wanted. He was the God of my misunderstanding. No, as Christians we're told to lean not on our own understanding. So you can sit in there as a Christian and, and you can become quite agitated from what you hear. But we need to go sometimes into dark places to shine a light. You know, Jesus didn't come here for the world, he came here for the sick. So, so I'm a Christian today because people stayed in 12-step fellowships when I got there. That's why I'm a Christian today. Because they didn't leave and they didn't leave on a religious service. So that's kind of what the meetings do. So I'm just going to skip forward to the church. So addicts in the church are probably... Prob so when, why, why does an addict find it hard to walk into a church? Because most addicts come, stop using, and what happens is they feel more guilt and shame than they did when they were using. So, so they've got this fear of being judged. You know, God is punishing, he's going to reject them because of their past. The church won't understand them. <coughs> now, there's, there's some, now, I've spoke... So with believers in recovery, we haven't partnered with certain Christian movements around recovery because they don't agree with what we say. So, so, so if, you know, God willing, you lot, you lot are going to be vicars. And I really pray that, and I understand this because Andrew's here, that you use St Paul's approach. Because we wouldn't have believers in recovery if it wasn't for that approach. Because some churches, and I've, and I've sat with many pastors where they would say, you don't need to go to meetings no more. You know, and, and you're a new creation. So then they would quote, go into Isaiah, where it says you're healed by his stripes. So, so my understanding of that is primarily for atonement of sins. And, and, and the, the physical you know, healing is going to happen in heaven. It's not going to save on earth. But they would say, you're healed now. You're not an addict. So what I say to them is, is there anyone in your congregation who's got an EpiPen? Who's allergic to stuff? They go, yeah. I say, do you tell them to throw their EpiPen away because they're all by his stripes? Hmm. And they say, no. <laughs> I say, well, why are you telling people not to go to meetings? You're telling them to throw their EpiPen away because I've got a physical allergy to drugs. That I don't know. I'm not, God could have, I ain't limiting God's power. He could, have, he could have cured me. I might be able to go down the pub now and have one. But I ain't going to put him to the test. If you don't take the test, you can't fail the test. <laughs> but, but you'll get, you'll get, and I'm sure it says don't test the Lord our God, and I'm sure Christ said that. So I'm going to put it to test. But many churches will say that. Your new creation, don't go there, it's cold, blah, 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 blah. You know, Christianity is enough. Hands written now on the end. Stick to what you know best. The gospel. Discipleship. Winning people to Christ. Churches, you're great at that. We're great at that. I'll do that in church. But sometimes you have to have some humility and say, we don't know. We don't know. You know, you know, and I, 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 I this is happened loads of times. I fell a country recently. He said, oh, I need to go, I don't need to go to the meetings. You know, I'm a new creation, I'm saved, and, and, and all this, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, he said, I've been a Christian eight years. And then he told me he's only four months clean. I said, So you was using as a Christian for seven months, seven, seven years, eight months, or whatever. <coughs> I thought he was a new creation. He was using as a Christian. So, the church sticks to what you know best. 
So where does believers come in on this? So this, this is kind of how believers work. So now it's uh, set up. So it's a pioneering ministry. You know, it's for me, pioneering ministry, you know, it's, it's looking at who isn't being meet and how we can meet them. That's for me what pioneering ministry is. So a lot of addicts, you know, are not being reached and some churches just don't know how to deal with us because we are lunatics. <laughs> T- trust me, if you want to know, you know, the disease of addiction, regulations five, the, the desires of the flesh, that would fit straight into 12-step literature. Uh, I just think addicts, addicts flesh is weak. Mm. It's, it, you know, so that's maybe the best translation of the disease of addiction is in Galatians 5. So how we work is, quick demonstration, Right, so someone comes into church and he's a using drug addict. So what, this is what happens in our church, this is what works. The church goes, right, we need to go to believers in recovery. They come to us, we say, you need to go to believers. But stay here. And then, we say you need to go to church. That is, that is the program that we've got in Believers in Recovery. We're a discipleship ministry for addicts or people being affected indirectly from addicts. See, what a lot of churches do, they say, stay out. This is all you need. This is all you need to stay out. You don't need this because you're healed. You just need Jesus. And some that is works, but for many it don't. So they're coming to believers, and, and, and one thing in believers is, because, it, because it's, that's a believer now, but um, when, when, they, when they come into believers, if you're going to work with addicts, look, we, are, we, are, we have got qualifications in lying, all right? And emotional blackmail, so we know when you're not telling us, not the truth, but you're <coughs> a bit fluffy with us. We will pick up on that. We've done a Believers in Recovery Alpha course, and I had to pull members of the church and say, you're being too fluffy. You need to be direct, tell them the truth, because they're going to pick up on that, because they are professional liars. So when they was asked questions like, you know, do, um, you know, do non-Christians go to heaven? <coughs> well, I don't, you know. No. Just say no. Because they was picking up, they were saying, no, I'm asking them questions, they're not being... And I had to say, tell them the truth. Because, you know, the truth will make you free, the truth will set you free. So don't be too, you know, kid lovey around us all. But, you know, we come from some dark places. You know, as Carol said, you know, I hear it means, oh, I don't like being told what to do, oh, I'm a bit sensitive. A bit sensitive? We spent our lives in crack houses. <laughs> and banged up in mental health institutions, I have, you know, a few times. You know, I was in prison and they said I wasn't fit for prison. They said, you can't, I thought they'd get me out. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, that's the result. They marched me to the nut house in the prison. They said, I won't fit for prison. You know So that's basically what we do. We're, we're a discipleship ministry. So when pe- and when people come in for meetings, we say, go to it. So we, so we always say in believers, keep coming back. Get there early, stay late. Do some service. Read the literature. So that's that literature, literature is scripture. So over here we say keep coming back, get them early, say they, do service, read the literature, get a sponsor. Over here we say get them early, 
Keep coming back. Read a literature, which is the Bible. You get me? Because what people don't know is over here, it all comes from over here. Originally. Steps come out of the Bible. We use the 12-step Bible, the 20 Bible, all the steps were highlighted in it. 12-step pogan come from scripture. People put the 12-step pogan together as all Christians, as members of the Oxford group. It's a, you know, it was all Christians. The founders of our quite synonymous were Christians. But they all of a sudden, so yeah, that's basically, uh, you know, I'm speed talking here. So I mean, I love that, and I could spend half hour on each one of them. Um, so I'm going to wrap up. Now, what, 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 I've been planning to do this for ages. I want to write something of a long thing that sums all this up. Because I think that one of my colleagues is, is to educate the church on addiction. So I mean, I think, you know, because it needs it. You know, a GP only gets half a day training at four and a half years on addiction. And that's why they're rubbish at treatment. They will just give you a pill, some Valium, crack on. So I don't know how much training a vicar gets in four years on addiction and training. But my, my, but my passion is, I don't want you to become like GPs who are no good at treating addiction because you've only had half a day training on addiction. So that's why it's great that you know, it's been arranged today for us to come in and, and educate the church on something that some churches are unborn enough to say we don't know about. Because if you don't get to that place where you're unborn enough to admit that, you can't learn and you can't change. Right, so I'll put the flies out for blues and pub and the thing. What's some more now? You know, you can take them with you, I'll print them off, hand them out, the website's on now, you know, there's questions and answers afterwards, you know, so that's me. Cool, that's amazing, thank you so much. So, um, the, the end of all that is that in a church like St Paul's it is an incredibly diverse church where there is a whole raft of behaviours going on that you might not normally expect to see in a Christian community um, because many of them are sub-Christian. But then the other side of that is I'm substandard because when I look at what Jesus did, he healed sick, freed the demonised and raised the dead. And there's a good deal of that that I've not yet done. So my experience of the gospel is also substandard. Um, but it does raise issues, which is how much can you tolerate in a church community um, before certain behaviours are, this is just not acceptable. How, how do you kind of deal with that? So Josh has had sort of practical first-hand experience of leading a ministry in a church like St Paul's, and he will have had to grapple with things like, what do you do with... Um, DBS stuff when the, the forms come back regularly as they do with a whole list of um, offences on them. How do you deal with that? What do you do when you've got team members who are really chaotic and won't necessarily show and are we just tolerating stuff that we should say no to? So Josh is going to try and theologically justify what I've been doing for 16 years. <laughs> yeah, cheers Andrew. No pressure. <laughs> Good afternoon. I think I know most of you, but for any of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Josh, and I'm a second year ordinand here at Trinity. Um, however, yeah, before I came to Trinity, I had the privilege of being called to St Paul's in Weston, um, where I worked there for a couple of years amongst these wonderful people. 
And so I'm going to share a few stories with you now of my experience focusing on what ministering to those in addiction and recovery looks like in a church, the redemption that I've seen therein, balancing belief in that redemption with the safety of everyone, and unpacking a little of that model that we talked about earlier of belong, believe, behave. I think the first thing that requires saying as I answer um, the question, what does it look like in a church, is messy. It looks messy. But it is also the most beautiful, chaotic mess I have ever witnessed. And that for me personally, that beautiful chaos speaks more of the kingdom of God than anything else I've ever seen. And I'd like you to hold those two things in tension as we go through. That these situations and stories are incredibly messy, but there is a beauty there that is profound, and that is the beauty of the gospel. The other thing that I truly believe, and I think is so important to get across as I start, is the absolute privilege of ministering to those in addiction and recovery, and those who face the life challenges therein. Because what I've seen ministering amongst and with those people is that the things of faith that are usually contained internally in our hearts, or hidden beneath the veneers of upbringing, social standing, class or education, are played out in real life. Because recovery forces people to be far more real than your average person. Ministering to those in recovery um, and addiction is raw and real. And the monumental blessing of that is that faith is therefore raw and real. Not sanitised or squeezed into cultural expectation or comfortable lifestyle, but raw and real and deep. And I think it's fair to say that the rawness and the realness and the expectation of extreme transformation brought to the table by those in recovery has permeated through everyone else at St Paul's and is an extremely huge blessing to the church. The redemption God is bringing and has brought through this ministry is utterly incredible. People's lives have been completely turned around for the glory of God. As you've seen and heard through the stories today, God is bringing redemption to whole lives. Redemption to family. Redemption to purpose. Redemption to identity. Um, and Isaiah 61 is one of the passages that really breathes life into my soul. And I think we see it in fruition so much when we look at ministry amongst and with those who are addicts and those in recovery. The passage lays out the people that Christ has come for. The poor, the broken-hearted, the captives and the prisoners. And it goes on to say, they will be called Oaks of Righteousness. They will be called Oaks of Righteousness. That is the level of redemption that I believe we are called to believe in. That people who have suffered with life-controlling issues, um, sorry, not that people who have suffered with life-controlling issues can be free enough in Jesus to kind of be alright, but always really depend on us churchy people. But that the Lord transforms them completely, and when he looks at them, he calls them oaks of righteousness. That is the level of redemption that I have seen God do through this ministry. As these stories today stand testament, these three ministry leaders, that God has called, redeemed, and set to work for his glory. But as I've said, this is a messy ministry. 
When you engage with this, um, you're going to have to develop the firmest of boundaries. And accept that sometimes what may seem like the hardest of boundaries is, in actual fact, the best way to love someone. You're going to have to get used to the idea that a DBS will take much longer to come back. I was once doing a DBS for someone joining the kids' ministry team, and he said to me, Josh, it's going to take a long time to come back. And I said, oh yeah, that's fine, don't worry about it. And he said, no, it's going to take a long time to come back. It did. It took five months to come back. The police had to track through hundreds and hundreds of offences, and it had to go to several different countries as well. And then eventually it did come back clear, because none of them did relate to children or vulnerable adults. And I saw that man then be the most incredible minister to young people, because there was something attractional about the way God had transformed his life that they were transfixed. And they wanted to know the reason. And you're going to see God do incredible things. But you're also going to have your heart broken when it all goes wrong. Someone relapses or the ensuing chaos that that creates. You're also going to have to accept that half the room are going to get up and go for a fag break during your (laughs) diligently prepared sermon. And most of all, you're going to have to get used to the fact that discipleship is going to look very, very different to how you expect it to. And that's what I'm going to unpack now. Expectations in discipleship and the lessons God has taught me therein. With three stories about a guy I met and ministered to and with during my time in Weston, who I'm going to refer to as Bob. When Bob came to faith, I was utterly rejoicing. Bob was in recovery, Bob was working a programme for drug and alcohol addiction. He also suffered from extreme PTSD from his time in the armed forces, along with a lot of trauma from other tragic life events. Further, Bob had been heavily involved in the world of organised crime, which he had been from birth, as the only male role model that he'd had in his life was the head of one of the largest organised crime groups in the UK. It would be fair to say that before he came to faith, he was a man for whom violence was a profession. When Bob came to faith in Jesus and was transformed, I was rejoicing. And rightly so, because God is incredible and he had done an incredible work in his life. But then I almost began thanking God that he was able to bring about this transformation and restoration even in Bob's life. At this point, I received a loving rebuke from God. What on earth was I talking about, even in Bob? You, Josh, were just as far away from me before you came to faith as Bob was. I was just as far away as Bob before I encountered Jesus. This links back to a little of what I was saying um, that I believe to be the huge privilege of ministering to those in addiction and those living in that chaos. Because the rebellion against God before coming to faith in Jesus is plain to see. The slavery to sin is plain to see. And therefore, the resulting transformation is so plain to see. Whereas a lot of my rebellion against God before I encountered Jesus had been the socially acceptable kind. So although Bob may have looked further away, That is a worldly fallacy. 
We were, in fact, just as far away as one another. My next story is a little bit further down the line. Bob's discipleship had been moving forward. He was working part-time for the church as a caretaker. And one Friday evening, he called a friend and I who were together. He explained that some travellers had set up a camp in the church car park, had broken into the boiler house to run um, power and water cables out of it. He explained that he was going to go to the main, into the main building and switch off the power and water remotely, but that he'd like us to come with him to avoid any trouble. Half an hour later, the scene is my friend and I stood back to back with um, a very angry traveller shouting in my friend's face, with me facing the other way, trying to calm Bob down and remind him of who he was called to be in Christ to prevent a brawl erupting in the church car park as they shot each other aggressive looks past us and called each other the choicest of names. Now maybe that sounds shocking to you. Um, maybe that is not what you'd expect of a disciple of Jesus or someone who is a paid member of staff at a church. But I want you to ask yourself who was depending on the grace and love of Jesus more in this situation? Because I, the one who looked like the good Christian young man in this situation was actually depending on my intellect. I was depending upon my emotional intelligence, developed from a trauma-free life. I was depending on my personal relationship with Bob. And I was depending on my middle-class conflict management skills. <laughs> Whereas I can promise you that the only thing that was stopping Bob from kicking this guy's head in was the grace and love and redemption of Jesus. He may have been clinging on to it by a tether, but he was fighting for the grace to live the way God was calling him to. Regardless of how it might have looked, who was the greater disciple in this moment? My third and final story about Bob as we unpack how discipleship looks different happened recently. It was actually whilst at the Welcome Week barbecue at the start of college. I had missed a few calls um, from Bob that I didn't manage to see until I got home. And when I got home and tried to call him back, I couldn't get an answer. I kept trying for the run-through of that week, basically a few times a day, all week, without response. Until eventually I left an answer phone message saying that I was getting a bit worried um, and I needed to know that he was alright. And later that day I got a text um, from his phone number, but it was from a friend of his saying that um, he want, he'd asked them to let me know that he was alright, but unfortunately he'd just been sentenced to three years in prison, where he currently was. Pretty heartbreaking, right? Um, and I think it would be easy to sit here and say that, oh well, he's walked away from the faith. He's no longer a disciple. Or maybe, depending on your theology, you might say clearly he never understood the gospel in the first place but I don't believe that. When I look at myself and the inner workings of my heart, and I think if you do the same and are honest with yourself, I have times when I take my eyes off of God and his plan for me, when I try and do things on my own. I recently went through a time of personal tragedy myself, and only after about a month did I realise that I hadn't been dealing with it with God at all, but had been shouldering it myself. I think we all have those times in our discipleship journey. 
And the fact is that when I do that, probably only my wife would notice. To the rest of the world around, regardless of what's going on in my heart, my life probably looks reasonably similar. But for those in addiction and recovery, and those with life-controlling issues, this simply isn't the case. A slip of discipleship can look huge. Taking their eye off of Christ can look huge. It can mean a relapse. It can mean some extremely messy behaviour. It can mean being recalled to prison. But spiritually, is it any different to what's going on in my heart? And I have no doubt that Bob still has a relationship with Jesus. That he knows the power and love of God and the grace that has saved him. And that he is a disciple on a discipleship journey. Discipleship just looks very different to how we might expect it to. And so finally, as I unpack this model of belong, believe, behave, I'm going to read us a passage from Luke 15 about the return of the lost son. Chapter 20 reads, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. While he was still a long way off, his father ran to him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. At this point, the father didn't know what he was coming home for. He might have been coming back to demand more money. He may have been coming back to blame his father for allowing him to squander the wealth that he would now never inherit. The father didn't know. Yet before he knows his motivation, he runs to him, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. Just to be clear, and definitely to be clear on the tape, I'm advocating a metaphorical hug and kiss. Um, we do have a friend who, on his first time in a church, um, was hugged by one of the welcome team as he came through the door. Um, he subsequently laid that person out and didn't go to a church for eight months. <laughs> he is also now ordained. <laughs> But this is what we believe we are called to emulate. That the second you come through the door, no matter who you are, what you've done, or what stage you're at, whether you've walked for Jesus for years, or you've come in to see if there's anything in the church that you can steal, you belong here. You are a member of this family. The kingdom of God is for you, and we welcome you home. Without anything being expected of you, you belong immediately. And maybe after belonging, you will get to the point where you believe. This is obviously our heart's desire and what we're all about. But it never impacts the fact that you belong, whether you believe or not. I think we see this in our parable, that after the father shows that the son belongs and is a member of the family, 
the son makes his statement of belief. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's being convicted of his actions. He believes that his father's way is what's best for him and that his way has led to ruin. And only after belonging and coming to a point of belief would we then expect to see behaviour change. And as I've said already, this doesn't happen overnight. This is a messy, messy process. Discipleship takes a lifetime. And it will, in these situations, look very, very different to anything you've seen before. But it is beautiful. And so that is the model we have employed and the way that we've tried to follow where God is leading. It's not a one-size-fits-all model, and we are constantly learning. It's a model that takes time to cultivate. It takes time to help the whole community understand that we're all the same before God, regardless of how shocking our life stories may seem. It takes time to realise that we are all one family, and yet our walks with Jesus can look very different. And it takes time for a group of disciples to turn from the natural reaction of the older brother upon the prodigal's return to a community that will throw their arms open wide to embrace and welcome someone after their first, fifth, tenth relapse and all the chaos that goes with that. It takes time, patience and grace, but God is patient with us and we are constantly learning. So there are a few of my um, experiences and reflections on ministering to those and with those in addiction and recovery. I hope it's been helpful and as I said at the start, ministering to those with life controlling issues really has been one of the greatest privileges of the calling that God has given me and one of the most enriching things for my own faith that I've ever been a part of. Thanks. Okay, we've kind of run over a little bit. I had thought we might do a bit of discussion in groups. Um, I have a few questions, which are things that I've grappled with, which are up there, where we think about people getting drunk and addiction issues, and we talk about it as a condition. Are we simply medicalising what is actually sin? Is that okay or not? When you look for conversion, shouldn't we expect a much more immediate transformation? than perhaps is being pictured there. And um, thirdly, how much sin can sanctification tolerate? Um, those are issues that I grapple with as a church leader and continues to do that. But rather than break into groups and discuss that, why don't we spend um, five, six minutes um, in open questions. So if you've got questions and things you want to ask, let's have a few moments to do that, and then I'll, I'll wrap up um, with the... the Next bit of Isaiah 61 that Josh missed out. Um, and a prayer. Okay, so let's just open the floor. Who has questions and for whom and what do you want to know? Yeah. Um, so, Paul Cunningham here training as a youth worker for a church in Exeter, yep. uh, specialised in working with sort of disenfranchised young people. Um, and one young person that came uh, to us was a uh, drug user. Um, and, and was dealing to quite an extensive level. Um, but the problem we had is he would come and be a part of our church. Mm. And one of the most heartbreaking things he ever said to me was like, you're all so middle class and I don't fit in here. Mm. And I think, 
uh, and I was chatting to Josh about this, uh, not about that specific situation, but the sort of idea of how do you make people in, in, in this sort of way feel part of something, even when they see, even though you may not see it, those sort of social barriers, okay. how you bring those down and make it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I'm going to deal with that really. So, well, I'm going to deal with it. So the way that I've done it, what I did is uh, when I took over from the church, I began to. It was a lovely church, beautifully safe, wonderful people, but very inward-looking. I felt so. I began to point them outward and say, "Can you see the issues in the town? Can you recognise what's going on in people's lives?" And for two years plus, I preached a gospel, which is about. Guys, we have to create a place where everybody is welcome. Um, and we made various changes to make that easier. So we did start allowing people to go and get coffee whenever they wanted during the service or to go out for a fag. Or um, we made the worship louder, heavier bass, bigger noise, more pacey, that sort of type of thing. The message was very much all the time, everybody's welcome here. Don't care what you've done, there's a place for you here. And we preached that for at least two years plus and um, did a lot of one-to-ones with people and education really with the congregation. Um, and uh, when you've done that for a while, if you have a congregation as I did with a good heart who is more concerned about mission than about themselves, um, and if you treat them well, they will go with you. And um, so over a process of time, it became a church focus that everybody was welcome here and then we learned on on the way so it was about creating a culture and I would say for me um, as a church leader that is the single most important thing that I do I'm hopeless these guys are so much better than I am at all sorts of ministries and things Um, but what I do um, is I hold a culture which is everybody's welcome here don't tell people off everybody's welcome here Um, so it's a culture, it's about the culture and creating a culture. It takes time. And you as the main church leader are the one to set and to hold that culture. Can I, can I just add on to that really quickly? Yeah. Well, like coming in as someone totally broken and judgmental of people who are middle class, really. I, was, um, I went to the evening service and the first trip afterwards, we, we went out on the social and I was struck back by actually how welcomed I was by our culture. Yeah. You said um, you were open to people going in and out and yeah. being very relaxed. Um, what happens if you have behaviour that you think is inappropriate, uh, but you don't want to tell people off? So someone's really sounding off and yelling and shouting or something. Or, I don't know whether that happens. Yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with disruption? Um, well, we do have that. <laughs> we do have that. Um, so my approach on the whole is we tolerate a huge amount of stuff unless somebody feels threatened um, or unsafe because of what's happening. And um, so we will have conversations with people afterwards and um, perhaps on one-to-ones, but actually at the time, very unlikely to disturb people. I mean, we've, I suppose we have a culture which is very noisy. Um, St Paul's can feel more like a football match than a church service sometimes. There will be shouting, Ben's mum. We're shouting and, um, in worship and stuff like that. So, so it is quite noisy, there's a lot of movement, so people can dance around, do all sorts of things you probably wouldn't notice. So if I saw someone 
doing that but in a way that was sexual with someone or in a way that was clearly making someone uncomfortable I might come get them to come sit with me and we would sit together and sort of worship together type thing and then do a sort of conversation afterwards how was that for you did you see what you were doing and the impact that was having yeah 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 um, I think I might know someone who may be interested in the um, Bristol meeting that believes in recovery. Mm. Is the best thing for them to kind of get in touch with that number? Yeah, <coughs> on that, I think it's Alex. Tonight the meeting in Bristol is on Thursday nights. It's in our Tomato Street, yeah. um, E5, and then in Eden, right next to the Tomato Street Hospital, which is a great place for believers in recovery to be because they're all at their head next door. It's, a, it's, a, it's an hospital, so it's convenient for the right place. But yeah, if you find the number on now, please to be Alex's contact number and they'll give you all the information. But it's on tonight, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I was just wondering, um, have you seen it done well uh, where you have a sort of chaotic, messy environment like that, but in a, a more traditional church where there's the, the congregation? Um, I don't think it's a, necessarily a barrier. So the way that we work it, we have congregations that worship in different styles, but the same culture. Um, so, you know, I can remember the, the day I saw, um, you know, she well in her 70s and teaching English uh, lit literacy to, um, uh, to a transgender woman. And I kind of thought, what an amazing transformation that woman has been through that... You know all the stuff that she would have inherited from her generation. She would sit there, and she would teach English to um, a transgender woman, and um, she was from a very traditional worshiping congregation. Um, so the heart and the culture is most important. Um, I suppose in practice, the folk in recovery or with more chaotic lifestyles worshipped initially are um, bigger, freer, easier service. But definitely now, people will worship across congregations, even though we still have a liturgical service with hymns, um, as well as a kind of more new wily type thing. Um, whether you can start from there, I don't know. That first service, they are the people who said yes to the Holy Spirit in the beginning, before my time. And still they hold the culture of the church with me. They like to worship in a traditional way, and they like it quite quiet. But they will say yes to mission and yes to all sorts of folk if they can see a reason. So they will cope with people wandering around in their service a bit, but I wouldn't push them too far. So I don't know, that's a bit of a fudge of an answer, I'm afraid. I, I've never done it, so I don't know. But people who love to worship in a more reflective, contemplative way can have just as much compassion and openness and welcome mm. as people who like to worship in a loud and noisy way. So I'm sure it must be possible. Yeah, yeah, in the back. Um, just thinking about, I'm just trying to remember organizations you work with, but um, working with the church and people and the other organizations outside of the church, yeah. how do we best cultivate that relationship? Because yeah. I work with other, you know, council members, and yeah, yeah. not always the easiest thing in the world. So just trying to, I don't know, 
Yeah. Carol, do you want to come and say, just say a little bit, how, what was it like for Western Counselling when you started working with St Paul's? What did we do that was terrible? Do we, come, come, and stand, <laughs> come and stand with me. Um, and, and what made the relationship work for you guys? Okay, um, well at that time Western Counselling um, was run by two people who found God and converted to Christianity Indeed. and made St Paul's their church. They also then decided that maybe some of our clients um, would benefit from this, and clients had asked. I was the only person who was adamant it should not happen. Um, but ironically, as I said, I ended up then being the one who delivered the boundaries and the drama triangle workshops. Um, so I, all I can do is talk about my experience. Our clients loved it. I was proved completely wrong. Our clients loved it. Um, a lot of them still go there, a lot of them participate and still engage fully. Um, for me, it broke down barriers for me. So, um, it, you know, my colleagues thought it was hilarious that I was the one who ended up working there. Because I was just, I was the most, no way, no, 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 it ain't happening. Um, but what it done was it, we, we worked together and we were able to signpost. So we were able to work in an environment that was um, built on mutual respect. You know, I wasn't dragged in and they didn't try to baptise me on a daily basis and I didn't try to drag them out. So, um, you know, it's my way of thinking. But what we did was we, we formed a partnership where we were able to signpost and work together for the benefit of the community. Mm -hmm. And our clients would volunteer to make meals for the homeless, and they loved that more than anything else. Mm -hmm. They got so much from that. Mm -hmm. And we had people who were illiterate who were taught by that lovely woman you were mm -hmm. speaking about. Mm -hmm. So what it done, what it done for our clients more than anything else, was it enabled them to see that so-called <laughs> ordinary people or people of God were non-judgmental. Mm -hmm. That was so crucial for them mm -hmm. because, as Gavin was saying, we come from we come from guilt and shame, absolutely, mm -hmm. completely. So to be in an environment where we're not judged, or you know, the church was not judging our client base, was absolutely fantastic, mm -hmm. and it helped me to realise I was the one who was actually judging. Mm -hmm. So yeah. We, we did, there was a lot of respect, so you know, we, we had a lot of conversation with the treatment centre, what works for your clients, what's actually making their recovery more difficult, um, so there were some things that we just wouldn't do, so primary care clients wouldn't come forward to prayer ministry and we wouldn't offer them prayer ministry because in that primary service they're very vulnerable, they have everything stripped away, the chance of having a massive emotional high and then collapsing is huge. So we worked with a treatment centre. You know, a lot of folk from our background be thinking they need deliverance or they need, you know, freedom and stuff. We think, well, okay, let's partner. Because what it brought us as a church was the opportunity to preach the gospel to folk who otherwise would never darken the door of a, um, a church building. So I was prepared to let go of some things that I felt and I do feel are important in terms of faith in order to have a partnership um, with experts in that field. Well, final question. You, you had your hand up earlier. Yeah, um, just to ask about the importance of belonging. Yeah. Um, so, again, before coming here, I was, I was doing this work, and there was this um, constant tension between, so we were working with young people who, uh, many of them had difficult home lives um, and were involved in drugs and stuff, and there was this tension of um, trying to help them belong 
yeah. and building a relationship of trust, mm -hmm. but then also having a legal duty when mm -hmm. information came up mm -hmm. and for referrals and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, how do you balance that and create a, like a culture of trust and also you know, have to do yeah, I suppose, I mean, on the whole, most of our dealings in terms of addiction has been with adults um, rather than young people. And so the issues are, are different there. So, um, you know, the issues primarily are around, okay, you're an adult, you can make up your own mind. If you want to know the way of Jesus, this is what I think you should do in this situation. But it's your bag there. So it's, it's a little different, I think, that, you know, with young people, absolutely, you then have to have So... Um, I'm no expert with youth. Um, I yeah yeah I really Sorry, don't know. Could, um, could I just yeah yeah of course you can. If you if you are, um, what I would suggest would be beneficial for all parties is that you're upfront at the very beginning. Um, did you do risk assessments? Yeah. Okay. So when you do your risk assessments or you do care plans, always say. Uh, I need to let you know, if you disclose this, or if this comes up, um, I have to do this, this, or this. Mm. So what you're doing is you're giving them the information before. And that way, it's not such a blow um, when they think, well, I can do this, because you'll call it that, but you've just reported me. Whereas if they know beforehand, if you, if you give them the information beforehand, then that might think, and if anyone was to say to me about coming into, you know, your middle class, I'm not, um, how do I fit in, turn around and say, maybe God wants you here to fit into work with people like you. Mm -hmm. Just keep it very simple. Carol, thank you. Right, we've finished, we've come to the end. Let me just um, share the um, one verse beyond what Josh shared um, when he was... Um, talking from uh, Luke's, uh, sorry, Isaiah um, 61, which of course Jesus, you'll know, quotes as his manifesto, really. I've struggled sometimes as a church leader um, in this work, because as most church leaders, we want to grow the kingdom, and for us that looks like a growing church and lots of people and transformation. I look around the church uh, in our country, and it is, for me, it's in ruins. It's desolate compared to how I feel the Lord Jesus wants the church to be in this land. And so I think, I need a great team. I need people who have money, who are trained in leadership, who are consistent and um, will work with me um, with good um, standard of discipleship. And the reality is that many of the folk who come initially, at least, in terms of recovery, are chaotic, bring debt rather than money, perhaps have terrible education and so they don't have um, that side to bring. They've not been trained in leadership in a workplace because they've never been able to hold down a job so they can't lead in, in ministry and their lives are chaotic and I need people who will turn up when they say they're going to turn up. Lord, how on earth am I going to grow um, a church with this? But what the next part of that reading from Isaiah says is that when Jesus says the call for us is to comfort those who mourn and um, to set the captives free and to lift the heads of those who are cast down. He goes on to say not only will they be called oaks of righteousness, but he goes on to say they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. 
they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So I have two tips for church growth. That is one of my tips for church growth. If you want to grow your, king, your church and grow the kingdom, work with folk who have been terribly broken and deeply damaged and help to restore them, bring faith in Jesus, disciple them, and then they'll become your staff. <laughs> Amazing. So we stand for a moment and pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your um, wonderful heart of compassion and tenderness, for your incredible strength and courage, for your authority and power. Lord, we worship you. Father, we thank you that we're called, each of us, on the same ground as sinners in need of redemption. We thank you for the blood that you shed for us and how through that we're forgiven and washed clean and have access into the presence of the Father. Father, we thank you that you call us sons and daughters, that we have right to approach your throne knowing that we will receive grace and mercy there in our time of need. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you fill our bodies with your presence, that you create and form the likeness of Christ within us, that you empower us for ministry and enable us for truth and peace. Lord, we worship you. I pray this evening for these folk here that they would know today more of your grace and your kindness, of your love and your mercy, that you'd empower and enable them for the ministry that they're doing now and for future ministry that you've already planned in advance for them to walk in. And Father, may they be the men and women that you've chosen them to be. Amen. Amen. So lovely to spend time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.